it is a great honor to be addressing this august gathering on the birth anniversary one in fact the 125th birth anniversary of a great man netaji subhashchandra bose whom we hold in of course the whole of india and quite a bit of the world holds him in great respect but here in west bengal uh, he had because he is the son of this particular soil we hold him in some special great respect the whole city today is agag with celebrations and uh, it is my uh, great it is a great honor for me to be invited by the sangam talks to speak on uh, this great son of india in the poster and the 60 word summary that i gave i said that the most glorious time of his life was after he left the shores of india but even before that the times that he spent were so momentous that i would not be doing him justice if i made no mention of it so let me very briefly take you through the uh, course of events he was born in 1897 in the city of katak which was then part of bengal presidency now it is a principal town biggest town possibly in the state of odisha and uh, his father was a lawyer there a very successful lawyer subhashchandra bose belonged to a family of uh, eight sons and eight uh, boys and six girls and being part of a family i suppose taught him the virtues of sharing but he grew up as a great idealist and totally fired by the thoughts of many people notably swami vivekananda swami vivekananda had died just a few years back that is in 1902 but his writings and his trip tours of the west made such a deep impression on a lot of people that subhashchandra bose would not escape his influence and he was to a great extent influenced by the thoughts of swami vivekananda anyway subhashchandra bose went to school went to college he enrolled in presidency college in kolkata it's now presidency university Uh, at that time one of the most celebrated colleges in the whole of india and uh, still in this part of the country very celebrated and there he earned some fame or notoriety as depending on which way you look at it by slapping an uh, uh, english professor one professor oten who had said something disparaging about uh, indians he was rusticated but he was eventually taken back then his father sent him to cambridge he studied in cambridge he made friends not many one of his principal friends was a person called dilip kumar roy whose father was a patriotic poet of bengal his name was dwijendralal roy is better known as dl roy this dilip kumar roy until his um, uh, the 
last disappearance of Subhash was a very close friend and confidant, and he had written a lot of letters to Dilip Kumar Rai. So Subhash Chandra Bosch passed brilliantly from Cambridge, sat for the ICS examination. During those days, for Indian boys, ICS being an ICS was the be-all and end-all of everything. It was a very coveted job, paid a huge salary by today's standards, and gave him almost powers of life and death over the area that that person would be administering. But in less than one year, he got this ICS in uh, 1920. In less than one year, he realized that this would be just serving the interests of the British, not serving the interests of India. So he resigned. Something unheard of. Someone resigning from the ICS. The Undersecretary of State for India called him and tried to persuade him. Subhash would not listen. Just imagine at that time he was just 24 years old. So he came back to India and joined the Congress. In Congress, he became a disciple of C.R. Das, Chitranjan Das, who was uh, who had been a Congress president and who was one of the foremost uh, patriots and nationalists of that time. C.R. Das took him under his wings and taught him a lot of things, among them the need for Hindu-Muslim unity, Hindu-Muslim uh, adjustment. C.R. Das, in fact, was the author of something called the Bengal Pact. And he had organized a party or a sort of a party within, a, within the Congress, which was called the Swarajist Party. But C.R. Das, uh, in fact, C.R. Das taught, uh, fought the municipal politics in 1924. He won on that Swarajist ticket. C.R. Das became the mayor. And he made Subhash Chandra Bose his chief executive officer. Only at the age of 27, you can imagine, it's a very responsible post for being the chief executive officer of Calcutta, which was then the principal city of uh, India, and said to be the second city in the British Commonwealth. Anyway, he was there, but at the same time, he was an ardent nationalist and he was carrying on his nationalistic activities, even while being there as chief executive officer. Then, after some time, the British could take it no more. That a person in an official position, he was carrying on with this nationalistic activity, so they imprisoned him. They put him in prison in a jail in Kolkata. Calcutta at that time. Even while in jail, Subhashchandra Bose was carrying on his municipal duties. But the British thought that this is too dangerous. So they shipped him off to Mandalay. Mandalay is a town in Burma, now known as Myanmar. And he was jailed in Mandalay. Mandalay is a, was an unhealthy kind of a place. And there in jail, Subhash fell very ill. In fact, he fell quite ill, so much so that at one point of time, he could not even rise from his bed. So he had to be 
carrot sometimes. And the British thought that wouldn't be a, make a good example to uh, have a person of Subhash's stature. He already had uh, joined that, uh, I mean, attained that state stature. So they released him. But they told him that you can't step in Calcutta. And later on, they extended to India. They asked him to go to Europe. As a matter of fact, at that time, most moneyed people, if they needed medical treatment, they went to Europe. But Subhash refused it. And the British relented and they let him stay in Calcutta. He had already joined the Congress. He was working with the Congress. C.R. Das suddenly died, had suddenly died in 1924. So he was no longer available to give guidance to Subhash. But Subhash was on his own. In 1928, when the Congress session was being held in Calcutta, that time, I think Motilal Nehru was the president of the Congress at that time in that particular session. Subhash organized a team of volunteers on military lines. Subhash had never had any military training, but it was there in him the discipline, I would say rather an un-Bengali trait, the discipline and the, the mental makeup of a military man with the results that these Bengal volunteers who worked as volunteers in the Congress session, they made a deep impression on his countrymen and raised some fear among the British. So this thing went on, but Subhash's health once again gave way. He must have been very badly treated in Mandalay jail. His health became so bad around 1930s, 1930 or so, that he was once again given the offer to go to Europe and he relented this time and he went to Europe, he went to Vienna. He underwent long treatment at that time. The nature of the disease, what he was suffering from is not clear, but from a lot of sources and circumstantial evidence, it appeared that he might have been suffering from tuberculosis, which was a very rampant disease at that time. But Vienna was one of the places where uh, there was good treatment of this, and then he got better. He got better, but after he got better and he was in a state to move around, he started visiting the European capitals and making friends with the eminent personalities there. And his brilliance was recognized in the fact that all the personalities at that time, they gave him audience. There was Hitler. He first met Hitler sometime around this time. He met Hitler's foreign minister, Ribbentrop. He met Mussolini's foreign minister, Count Ciano. He met the Irish prime minister, De Valera. He met Sir Stafford Cripps, Lord Earl Attlee, the prime minister who eventually gave independence to India and a lot of other dignitaries. And the fact that, as I said, the fact that he, has, he was given audience by all these prominent people meant that he had already been, uh, he had already begun to be taken very, very seriously. Then he came back to India. 
by that time he was fully cured, joined back the Congress, and his brilliance attracted the admiration of his countrymen to such an extent that Gandhiji chose him to be the next Congress president in 1938 in Haripura. Now, this Haripura Congress was a sort of a milestone in his life, and I'll presently tell you why. See, at that time, Gandhiji was, so to say, the dictator of the Congress. What he said went. I mean, there was no one to speak up to him. After Subhash became the president of the Haripura Congress, he perceived certain things all around which were taking place, taking place all around the world, among them the rearmament of Germany and the fact that Britain was being pushed to one corner and the United States at that time was totally aloof in pursuance of something they call the Monroe Doctrine. The uh, United States remained completely aloof from the affairs of, uh, the affairs of Europe. So the position was Hitler, Germany was getting more and more powerful. So was Mussolini's Italy. So was Stalin's Russia. And Britain was more or less being pushed to a corner. But at the same time, Britain had its empire. It had its commonwealth. So it was a sort of a balancing game. But at this time, Britain had a very weak prime minister called Neville Chamberlain. This Neville Chamberlain, uh, Hitler started to, took advantage of this Chamberlain's presence and he started pushing Britain. He invaded Czechoslovakia, Britain relented. He invaded Austria, Britain relented. Eventually, when he inv invaded Poland, Britain declared war on Germany, and that was the uh, beginning of the Second World War. Now, when the Second World War started, Netaji Subhashchandra Bose in India had crossed swords with Gandhiji to such an extent that he could no longer see eye to eye with him. In the 1939 Congress, Gandhiji's nominee in the Congress was a person called Pattavi Sitaramaya. He was a good man, but he was a colorless man, Pattavi Sitaramaya. So when Pattavi Sitaramaya was announced as Gandhiji's choice at the 1939 Tripuri Congress, Subhash Chandra Bose said, no, I don't accept him. I shall once again compete for the presidency. And he did compete. And he won. He was elected the president of the Congress for a second time. And Gandhiji openly declared, Pattavi's defeat is my defeat. After Gandhiji had declared this, the rest of the Congress bigwigs, like Nehru, Patel, Azad, Sarojini Naidu, all these people, they ganged up on Subhash and they elbowed him out of the Congress. With the result that he came out, he first tried to form a sort of loose consolidation of leftists. He was of a leftist bent of mind. But uh, so far as I have seen, he did not have, uh, his primary focus was on the, in the independence of India, not on any economic theory. 
but he was always dubbed as a leftist and on the opposite poles of Gandhi, particularly with respect to this ahimsa and uh, the civil disobedience and that kind of thing. He said that Netaji uh, Subhash thought that no way you can achieve independence of India by doing all these things. Independence has to be snatched away from Britain. So this thing happened and the situation turned, take took such a turn that he was elbowed out of the Congress by Gandhi, the machinations of Gandhiji. One of his biographers, I think is a most reliable biographer, that is Leonard Gordon, has said that he this superior politicking skill skills of Gandhiji, superior politicking skills of Gandhiji, Subhash was no match for it. He was a much more straightforward man. And as a result, he was elbowed out of the Congress. He formed a group called the Forward Bloc. First within the Congress, then he came out and then formed the Forward Bloc. But he couldn't give it a very good shape because the people who supported him, they were a polyglot group. You know, they were Hindu Sangatanis, they were Swarajis, they were MN Roy's followers and the radical humanists, all kinds of things, Kisan Sabhais. And he could not get all of them organized. And eventually, he gravitated to municipal politics. Now, I personally think that this, he should not have done it. I mean, Netaji Subhashchandra Bose, being a leader of not only national, but international stature, he should not have gone into national uh, municipal politics in Calcutta. But no matter what, he did it. And 1940, the year 1940, was spent by him in this municipal politics. Towards the end of 1940, he declared that he had once again fallen ill and he would be confined to his bed in home and uh, he would not see any, uh, any person except his family members and very close friends. So he stayed that way. And sometime in January 1941, with the help of his uh, nephew, Sishir Kumar, Dr. Sishir Kumar Bosch, he escaped from that house. His escape itself is a great drama. He knew that he was under surveillance, but everybody thought that he would escape by train. At that time, air travel was not uh, very developed. And uh, going by train or going by leaving Calcutta by ship, he would have certainly been caught by the British. So Shishir Kumar Bosch drove him out of Calcutta over Grand Trunk Road and took him to a place called Gomo. At Gomo, he, meanwhile, he had disguised himself. He had grown a beard. He had disguised himself as one Molavi Ziauddin. And this Molavi Ziauddin uh, left Shishir Kumar Bosch and he boarded a train and went all the way to Peshawar. Then in Peshawar, he was received by uh, some people. And then from Peshawar, he walked. It's a very, very difficult walk through the country roads and through the Khyber Pass, entered Afghanistan. Then in Afghanistan, he was given refuge by an Indian trader called Uttam Chand. He stayed there for some time. 
He knocked at the doors of different embassies. He could not go do so very openly for fear of being caught by the British because Afghanistan at that time was crawling with British agents, including Indians. Eventually, he managed to get some kind of response from the Germans and later on from the Russians. So he moved from Afghanistan to Soviet Union over the border, over which now refugees are running away from the Taliban regime across the Amudarya or Oxus River. And he entered the USSR. From USSR, he traveled all the way through uh, the Soviet Turkestan, what was then Soviet Turkestan, then through European Russia and eventually into Germany. Poland and Germany. Poland by that time was under Germans. And by this time, you must uh, remember that the Germans and the Russians, they were bound by the non-aggression pact which Hitler and uh, which uh, Germany and USSR had signed. The non-aggression pact which said that these two nations would uh, not attack each other. And at the same time, they would they sort of made a um, uh, deal between themselves to gobble up Poland. So Russia took half of Poland and Hitler took the other half. So eventually Hitler, the uh, Subash, reached Germany and that was his destination. He thought that he would be able to enthuse the German government, the Nazi government, to declare independence for India. And there, from there, he could address the Indian nation over radio. Now, he was sorely disappointed. He did manage to see Hitler. He was received by Ribbentrop a number of times, who was Hitler's foreign minister. And he spoke to all the other leaders. He spoke to Chiano also, that is Mussolini's foreign minister. But all of them said that the time is not right for a European powers like Germany and Italy to declare Indian independence and declare Chandra Bose as a government in exile. So he, at that time, was, he was really at a dead end. But in the meanwhile, he started organizing the Indian POWs in German camps. A lot of Indian soldiers had been taken prisoner in North Africa. And they were shipped to a place called Annaburg, which is near Dresden in Germany. He started a POW camp there. And then he tried to organize them into an Indian legion. Indian legion, which would eventually fight with German help to liberate India. But the lack of interest that the Germans, the Nazi Germany showed, it disheartened him. Meanwhile, Japan had started making inroads in Asia. It had already sunk two huge British battleships in the near uh, Singapore, which shook the pride of the Britain in their great navy, the Royal Navy, the unassailable navy. These two sh battleships were just sunk in a matter of days. Prince of Wales and Repulse. And then the, British, the Japanese invaded the Malay Peninsula. The British, very stupidly, in Singapore, which was considered their bastion, had all their guns pointing towards the sea. 
in the hope of meeting the Japanese there. The Japanese surprised them from coming from there behind and took over Singapore. Britain practically surrendered without firing a shot, surrendered Singapore. It was a huge loss. I mean, it was a huge come down for Britain and uh, the prestige of Britain at that time plummeted. As a matter of fact, after this, if the Americans had not come to the aid of the British in the Pacific theater, the British would have been completely vanquished by the Japanese. Anyway, the Japanese started progressing, uh, proceeding northwards from Malay towards Burma, and they took over Burma just like that. The British could not offer any, any resistance. But meanwhile, the Japanese had made a mistake of bombing Pearl Harbor. And bombing Pearl Harbor, it is said that it was a big mistake, which was said even by the Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, who said that you have awakened a sleeping giant, the sleeping giant being United States. And after that, the United States came to war in the Pacific theater and the look changed. Now, as the Japanese were proceeding, meanwhile, a revolutionary called Rashbihari Bose, who had been stationed in, who had been living in Japan for a long time, because he was, I mean, he, he would have been caught and executed possibly by the British if he had been in India. He had gone to Japan, he had married a Japanese woman, and he had been living in Japan for a long time. And then he had come to Singapore and Malaya, and he had been trying to organize the Indian POWs there. There were a very large number of them, much bigger number than were found in North Africa uh, and shipped to Germany, which Betaji or uh, Subhash Prachandra was saw earlier. So these people he organized, there was another person called Mohan Singh, but to explain his role will take a lot of time. So I'll skip that. Mohan Singh and Rashbihari Bose, they both had very uh, yeoman roles to play in this whole thing. So the army started, their army started moving up the Malayan Peninsula into Burma, and then they proceeded towards India. Now what had happened in the, at that, this stage is, that the supply lines were getting very extended. The, this is one thing that the Japanese possibly had not calculated because their supply bases, the army, you know, is a, it is said that the army marches on its stomach and the supply lines by which food for the troops as well as arms and ammunition are sent uh, are a lifeline for any army. These lines were getting very extended, and the base was being continuously bombed by the Americans. By that time, the Americans were in the war uh, fully against the Japanese. The, the only force that was um, uh, combating them were the Japanese. Subhash, after he landed in Japan, he, oh, I forgot to tell that. Meanwhile, he when he found that he had no uh, he found no sympathy with the European powers of Germany and Italy. He decided to go to Japan. Meanwhile, Japan made a, quite a few friendly noises. So he had to go to Japan. But between uh, your between uh, Germany and Japan was a huge mass of land 
and sea, which was totally hostile. Russia was hostile and the seas were also hostile. It was impossible to fly across the Soviet Union and reach Japan. So what he decided was to go by submarine. And he traveled in a German submarine. He went to a place near Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. There he rendezvoused with a Japanese submarine. And in the Japanese submarine, he traveled to Japan. And from Japan, he met up with Rashbihari Bose. He took control of the Indian National. He took control of the prisoners of war. He organized them into the Indian National Army, which was also known as the Azadin Forge. One thing I forgot to mention that when he was organizing the Indian POWs in uh, Germany uh, into what he called the Indian Legionnaire, he had coined the slogan Jai Hind. This coined slogan Jai Hind was coined by Netaji Subhashchandra Bose. And today in the Indian Army and possibly also in the other Indian, Indian forces, this has become a standard greeting. Army men, they don't say good morning or good evening. They say Jai Hind. This Jai Hind was such a powerful slogan, such a powerful slogan that it cut across all religious and caste barriers. Netaji, while organizing the Indian Legion, he had forbidden any kind of uh, religious or any kind of uh, religious or caste functions, that is, uh, any, any collective functions. Individually, one couldn't do anything. And he planted this cult of Jai Hind, which was a great thing, which was a great, great thing. So Netaji in Malay formed the Indian National Army of the Azad Hind Forge. <coughs> and with that army, in tandem with the Japanese, he proceeded northwards. He came to Burma, now Myanmar. And then he set foot on Indian soil in a place called Mairang in Manipur not very far from Infal. This is considered a momentous thing. He had also penetrated at another point in Nagaland called Ruzazu. It's a small, uh, small village. But in Ruzazu, his Indian National Army, they set up a municipal administration there. This is the only civilian outfit that the Azadin Foy had set up on Indian soil. As a matter of fact, I had it's a very remote village, very difficult to get there. In the year 2017, when I was the governor of Tripura, I had been invited by the governor of Nagaland, Sri uh, Padmanabhacharya, to participate in a function in this Ruzazo, in this village of Ruzazo. And we had, we take, took great trouble to travel to the village. And also had been invited a person called Dr. Purabi Roy, who was an Netaji scholar. And eventually, we had, had a function there, but that is just an aside. But this was the point when the tide of the war turned. The Japanese could not proceed any further because their supply lines were overstretched. This, they should have calculated, they did not. They, if they had stayed put in Burma, then perhaps they could have fought the Allies for a longer time. 
So they started backtracking now from India back to Burma, back to Malay, and then they went back to Japan. Philippines was liberated. Philippines was a possession of the United States. It was liberated. The Pacific Islands, the Indonesian uh, areas were liberated from Japanese control by the Americans. And ultimately, Japan withdrew to its what they call the home islands, the Japanese islands. Even there, they decided to fight on and not surrender. By this time, the European powers had surrendered. You know, in Second World War, there are two days of uh, termination. One is the uh, VE Day, that is Victory on Europe Day, and the other is the VJ Day, Victory over Japan Day. And this Victory over Europe Day is much earlier. Japan did not surrender so easily. Japan surrendered only after the uh, two atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dropped. Anyway, when the war came to such a stage that Netaji had traveled to Taiwan, which was at that time known as Formosa, to a town called Taihoku, possibly, which is the Japanese name for Taipei. And from Taihoku, he was seen boarding an aircraft. And that is the last picture of Netaji Chandra Bose, where he, had seen, where he was seen. After that, it's a smokescreen of mystery. Nobody knows what had happened. One of the versions that we have heard is that, that we, where we know very well is that immediately after the aircraft took off, he was going to Japan. Immediately after the aircraft took off, it, the, uh, the engines caught fire and the plane crashed and he was killed with it. His, the ashes of his body are kept in a temple called Renkoji in Japan. But a lot of people believe that he did not die in that thing. There is some evidence both for and against it. He, uh, people believe that he did not die in uh, that air crash. He did not, in fact, board that aircraft. I mean, the, the flight that he boarded in did not crash. It was a subsequent flight which crashed. And then he came back. He went to Japan. When Japan was about to surrender, he went to Soviet Russia. He wanted the help of Stalin. Instead of helping him, Stalin, Stalin put him in jail. And then he perished in that jail. Uh, Dr. Puravi Roy, of whom I have already made a mention, uh, is uh, researched this particular subject. His death is shrouded in mystery. That is all we can say. One of the schools of thought, the, the most dominant school of thought, say that he was killed in that air crash and then the ashes kept in Renkoji Temple are his ashes, but a lot of people don't believe it. And there the matter ends. The other mystery regarding him, which is which a lot of people do not accept, is about his marriage. He had married his this I believe, and it has been said by a number of historians also that he had married his secretary, uh, Emily Schenko. He was an Austrian woman. Uh, she had been his secretary for a long time, and uh, they had married, and 
Anita Fav, Anita Bose was their daughter. Later on, married a person called Faf, P-F-A-F-F. Faf is a German national. She lives in Germany now. She is known as Anita Bose Faf. A lot of people believe that Netaji could not have married unless before having uh, achieved the independence of India. Now, this is emotion, right? This is emotion. Netaji was a human being after all. He was, he was not a demigod or any such thing. He was a human being and he had all kinds of uh, attributes uh, or failings as human beings have. But he was a wonderful human being. He was a great human being. He had qualities that most of us do not possess. Most of us, almost 99% of us do not possess. That is why a person who had such wonderful opportunities in life, like being in the ICS or like uh, going, uh, remaining with Congress and being uh, subservient to Gandhi and Nehru had done, he could have attained greater heights. But he left India, left Indian shores. That was the most glorious part of his life. And then he had paid for it with his life. Certainly he is not alive today. Uh, his 125th birth anniversary. But until even 10, 15 years back, there was a very substantial body of people, particularly in West Bengal, who believed that he was still alive. Anyway, beliefs are beliefs, but people who are interested to study him, among them, there are people who have really studied him in great depth. One person in India is Anuj Dhar. Uh, those who are interested to know about Netaji and who have uh, this, uh, who have this, uh, are, who want to know more about him, I would suggest that you study the writings of People, one person is Anuj Dhar. The second person, uh, the, the other two persons who are foreigners are Leonard Gordon, who had written a book called The Brothers Against the Raj, which is a combined biography of his brother, Sarath Chandra Bosch and Subhash Chandra Bosch. It's a very well-written, very well-researched book. And I personally think it's the most authentic biography of him. And the third is a book called the Springing Tiger. It's by a British intelligence officer called Hugh Toy. This Hugh Toy, being a British intelligence officer, intelligence officer, you can imagine he would not have been normally an admirer of a person like Netaji, who had sided with the Germans and the Japanese. But he was because he had transgressed his national loyalties. And he realized that what an extraordinary person Subhash Chandra Bose was. And this book, of course, it contains a lot of uh, pro-British sentiments and that kind of thing. It's, uh, it is an eye-opener and it's, it's, I consider it at least partly authentic. The books that you should not read, I would say, are a lot of very emotional books in Bengali, which do not give you... Uh, a proper picture of things. And also the book by Niran C. Choudhury, his autobiography, Niran C. Choudhury had seen on uh, Subhash Chandra Bose at close quarters. But Niran C. Choudhury was such an inveterate Anglophile that he could not imagine that the British Englishman could make any mistake. 
So that was that he uh, thought that Netaji was, I mean, the fact that Netaji ran away by giving the slip to the uh, British um, detectives in Calcutta. This is all uh, nonsense. He, they, they allowed him to escape. So, ladies and gentlemen, I come to the end of my lecture, but I have tried my best to uh, do justice to this great, great son of India who has been aptly honored by our Prime Minister Narendra Modi by installing his statue in the most central place of New Delhi where the statue of the King Emperor once stood. And uh, I congratulate the Prime Minister for having done so. And meanwhile, thank you, Aparna. Thank you, Sangam Talks, for giving me this opportunity to speak on this great, great man. Thank you very much. God bless you. I would like to know a little more about Gumnami Baba aspect because I have my inclinations, you know, I do believe that. See, when we were children and print was the only, um, uh, I mean, other than All India Radio, print was the only reliable media. We used to hear on the Calcutta street, suddenly in the dead of night, somebody shouting, telegram, telegram. These were these telegrams or special issues of certain newspapers, which said that Netaji has come back or Netaji is coming back. And a lot of rumors were floated about it. One was by about a sadhu in a place called Solmari in North Bengal. Another was about Gumnami Baba. But my point is, if they had really been Netaji, then why didn't they uh, expose themselves? Some people said that he is a He's a prisoner of war. He's a uh, war criminal. So if he um, comes out, then he will be imprisoned by the British, by the Americans, by the Russians, all kinds of things. But that time is gone now. And certainly, say in the 1980s or 1990s, if he had come out, 1970s even, if he had come out, public opinion would not have allowed any of these powers to imprison him. So I don't think there is any truth to uh, this Gumnami Baba or Sholmari Sadhu being Netaji Subhash And I personally also believe that he was, um, you know, like Dr. Conradale said, yes, a Mahatma got us independence. His name was Subhash Chandra Bose. So instead of a very great man, I do have my, uh, you know, leanings that he was, you know, par human. No, I'll tell you something, you know, which is very eye-opening. A lot of people don't know about it. See, the Prime Minister of Britain from whom we got independence was Clement Attlee, the Labour Prime Minister. Now, Clement Attlee happened to visit Calcutta in 1953 and put up at the Raj Bhavan there. Raj, the governor of West Bengal at that time was uh, Justice P.B. Chakraborty. You know, the previous governor had died. And when a governor dies, the uh, chief justice becomes the acting governor. The P.B. Chakraborty was the acting governor. P.B. Chakraborty asked Atli, to what extent was Gandhiji's movements, the 42 movements, civil disobedience, all these things, Ahimsa, to what extent these were instrumental in 
persuading the British to leave India. You know, Attlee used to, he, uh, P.P. Chakruti had written a letter to this effect somewhere, but Attlee used to smoke a pipe, you know, so he stuck that pipe in his mouth. And after some thinking, he said, minimal. That is to say the effect of Gandhiji's movement on the British decision to leave India was minimal. Actually, in, uh, in analysis, a lot of people would agree with me that the thing that eventually persuaded the British to leave India was not a simple, single thing. There were several factors. For one thing, Britain had been very badly mauled in the war and they, were, they had become almost an impoverished country. They, had, they were saved out of that condition only by the Marshall Plan launched by the U.S., so in such circumstances, the Britain had lost its will to uh, govern this country. Second thing, the Labour Party, which was in power at that time, the Labour Party was never in uh, favour of keeping the empire intact. If Churchill had been still the prime minister, he would not have given India independence. Third thing, which I think is the most, um, most uh, pressing uh, reason, for the British to leave India was the uh, organization of the INA by Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose. It is not as if INA vanquished the uh, British. INA was vanquished by the British and they were driven back. And then eventually they were all caught as POWs. They were brought to Delhi for a treason trial. We all know that, that INA trial in Delhi in 1946. But... The INA, the organization of the INA by Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose had, put, had shaken the faith of the British in their Indian troops. After all, how many British were there in India? Hardly 10,000, 12,000. And they were ruling a country of uh, population or with a population of some 33 crores, uh, 35 crores. So what was the instrument through which so few people were ruling so many people. It was the army, basically. And the army, they had once been mauled by the army back in 1857. So after that, they learned their lessons and they molded their army in such a way that they would never, this, uh, they would never uh, rebel against the British. But the army did rebel against the British when the INA came and that shook the British faith in the army. The second thing was a naval mutiny, which took place in 1946 in Mumbai, then Bombay. And these things uh, are considered to be the prime reasons why the British left India. So Netaji had a very big role. See, what Gandhiji basically did was to beg for independence. I mean, excuse my uh, words. But uh, he uh, practically begged for independence. His, his idea was to, to cause a change of heart of the British. No such thing happened. The British did not change heart. They left it because of their own compulsion. And by the, by the way, what Gandhiji brought about was not only independence, but also partition. Gandhiji acceded to partition. If he had... He used to go, go, go on fast at the drop of a pin. If he had gone on fast against partition, possibly partition would have never happened. 
but he just gave in namaskar uh, sir namaskar. it was a wonderful talk and a great day to talk about netaji pay a tribute to him when pm has already announced uh, his statue to be placed under that canopy which we have been wanting for such a long time i have two three questions actually uh, first is that ina was uh, founded by netaji or rasbihari bose ina actually had been started by rasbihari bose and uh, i think he gave that name ina anyway whoever uh, gave the name the organization of indian pows in the malayan peninsula had been started by rasbihari bose according to the account of the account given by hugh toy but it was really welded into a powerful force capable of taking on the british and parleying on equal terms with the japanese was netaji subhash chandra bose and the other thing is that netaji uh, i think he added azad hind fort and he also got the janaganaman translated into urdu what could you attribute it to why the use of urdu was so rampant even in his uh, radio talks see it was not urdu he tried to promote a language which he called roman hindustani roman hindustani is hindustani hindustani is the language you know halfway between halfway between hindi and urdu urdu itself is a language which is an artificial language made by putting farsi words in hindi grammar okay but urdu has a lot of persian words these persian words were sort of toned down and then uh, made into a language which is understandable to the whole of india it was called hindustani the spoken hindi at that time was hindustani in the early uh, in the 1940s and early 1950s if you have seen a film called kismat uh, of the 1940s it they still it's a very famous film and they still show reruns of it you would find the ashok kumar was a hero he was when he was meeting someone he was saying adavrsh nowadays we don't see that say that we say namaskar but ashok kumar was a hindu the person who was he was meeting was a hindu but they were saying adavrsh to each other so this was hindustani this is a um, halfway between hindi and uh, this thing he wanted that plus he wanted it to be written in roman script because there are large number of scripts in india which are not understandable one to the other devanagari is the most common script but there is also the assamese bengali script there is the tamil script the malayalam script the telugu and kannada script all these things the gurmukhi script so he wanted the roman script to be used so that is one thing he wanted to unify india the unify uh, the bring the country under one one umbrella and eradicate all religious and caste differences whether it's an utopian idea or not it is very difficult to say whether he managed to do it in a military milieu you know when he was organizing the indian legion and the ina but after if he had i'm assuming he had come to india he had gone the control of india or he had uh, he had become the prime minister of india whether he would have been able to do it all over india is really open to question and uh, 
perhaps he might not have he might have been able to prevent partition that is perhaps very difficult to say because muhammad ali jinnah was such a hard nut to crack and with some mistakes made by the congress such as the boycott of the uh, state assemblies and going to jail after the 1942 movement jinnah had become so powerful that it would have been very difficult to buck him so these are all in the realm of uh, conjecture other question is that yes. uh, when there is a mystery around his death why the yes. government is not interested in getting a dna test of uh, ashes at renkoji temple i don't know whether it's possible or not but that you have to ask the government i can answer okay. my my question is that what is the is there a story behind it then okay japanese must be knowing uh, so, so, so something must be knowing what the facts are okay how how ashes were put there who did it there or or what is the truth behind it this is not known this is ever since that he was shown as boarding that aircraft in taihoku uh -huh. and that ashes landed landing up in the renkoji temple in between nothing is known oh, nothing right. is known and um, obviously i don't know it there might be something in the archives of the government of india there might be something in british archives maybe russian maybe japanese i don't know yeah because because it is actually where these ashes are stored they are actually mm. outside the temple you know mm. <laughs> okay mm. to 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 make uh, uh, easy for people to come in and pay their mm. homage and go back mm. you know without entering the temple or without restriction of time so they have mm. made it very easy mm. there is a question by nandakumar ji he says what mm. are your views on the outcomes in subsequent indian politics if partition had not taken place you see partition if partition had not taken place then possibly the cabinet mission proposals of 1946 would have taken effect the cabinet mission proposals were of a weak center and strong states with the certain very uh, limited powers to the center and the residuary powers to the states this might have worked this might have worked you know molana azad in his autobiography has said that this was a great opportunity to keep the country intact and nehru spoiled it by and he said deliberately he said deliberately nehru spoiled it by making a declaration on the 10th of july 1946 that this is something that we have been forced into but when we go into the constituent assembly we will not be fettered by any of these things actually jinnah was in difficulty inside his own party because of his having consent to give a given consent to the cabinet mission proposal so jinnah got this opportunity and he said that uh, this nehru can't be trusted actually nehru made another mistake back in 1937 when 1937 in up when congress and muslim league were fighting the elections on an understanding and the congress swept the polls 
the Nehru got carried away in his enthusiasm and he said that all these parties like Muslim League and all that, they'll be swept away. They will have to simply fall in line with the Congress. The Jinnah said that this is going back on his earlier promise. Then 1946 also he said that Nehru has gone back in his earlier promise. He is not a man who can be trusted. So we are withdrawing our consent to the cabinet mission proposals. And we are declaring 16th August 1946 to be the, the direct day for direct action. And that direct action actually translated to the great Calcutta killings in which some 10,000 people were killed. So uh, if Chandra Bose had come, it is possible that partition might have been avoided. If partition had been avoided, the most likely scenario would have been the acceptance of the cabinet mission. Namaskar. Namaskar. Uh, sir, sir, my question is that uh, there, uh, can you put some light on the relationship between Netaji Subhashchandra Bose and Samaprasad Mukherjee? You have written a book on Samaprasad Mukherjee. Yes. So, and there is also a saying that Netaji Subhashchandra Bose was against Hindu Mahasabha and criticized many things and all the statements. Huh? So please, can you throw some light on this? Thank you. See, all this is true. Netaji Subhashchandra Bose, but I, as I said, Netaji Subhashchandra Bose, a leader of his stature, should not have gone into a leader of the international stature, level or national, international stature. He should not have gone into municipal politics. The spat that he had with Dr. Shamprasad Mukherjee was regarding municipal politics. Was it an area for a person like Subhashchandra Bose to go into? Actually, in the beginning, the Hindu Mahasabha and Congress were supposed to work hand in hand and they were supposed to have some kind of seat adjustment. But this seat adjustment did not take place and Sarachandra Bose, that is Netaji's elder brother, broke that alliance and after that there was this mutual sort of mudslinging and as a result of that they were both said, particularly Netaji said certain unkind things about Shama Prasad Mukherjee. These are facts. Fortunately, their overlap was confined only to one year. Netaji, uh, Shamaprasad Mukherjee entered politics in 1939, December, with a Hindu Mahasabha session held at Kolkata. And Netaji Subhashchandra Bose left India's shores by January 1941. And even earlier than that, he had confined himself to home, as I said. And he had been, he um, pretended to be convalescing or something like that. So their overlap was very small. During this overlap, it is true that they did not see eye to eye and they said unkind things to each other. But that is a very, very, very small part of Netai Subhashchandra Bose. Now, what a lot of people use is that because they have in their lip service, even the communists, even the communists, who had said the most horrible things about Netaji, who had painted a cartoon of Netaji on the face of Netaji on the face of a dog held on a leash by the Japanese Prime Minister Tojo. Even they say, no, no, Netaji, he had spoken ill of the Hindu Mahasabha, he had spoken ill of the Shama Prasad Mukherjee. It's a very, very small chapter in the life of Netaji Subhashchandra Bose, an insignificant chapter. 
if he had lived on, if he had remained in India, and Hindu Mahasabha would have still continued, it is very difficult to say what turn uh, politics would have taken. This is purely in the realm of conjecture. After all, you must understand that at that time, Congress was only giving, giving ground, giving ground, giving ground to Muslim League. Mahatma Gandhi's, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi's, Mohandas Gandhi's modus operandi right from the beginning had been to give ground to the Muslims. Even when after a horrible uh, near genocide in uh, uh, Malabar, which is now Kerala, in something which was called the Mopla Rebellion, some 3,000 Hindus were killed. The, the, it was an absolutely one-sided pogrom in which Hindu Muslims killed Hindus. Ma Gandhiji went and said that these people are very brave, God-fearing people, these people who killed. Can you imagine that? Then, after that, in a town called Kohat, now in Pakistan, it was in it was is now in the uh, province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. In this Kohat, there was a similar pogrom of Hindus by Muslims. Gandhiji, what he did is he held prayer meetings. Not one word of condemnation. In a place called Noakhali in Bengal, in 19, October 1946, there was a wholesale massacre of Hindus. Gandhiji went and held prayer meetings. Not a single word of condemnation. In such circumstances, in the face of this kind of giving ground and capitulation, what Netaji would have said is very, very difficult. And sir, in, in later, later period, did Shamaprasad Mukherjee also change his stand and pay tribute to Netaji or is there any some, some kind of... Of course he like did. Of course he did. Number of times. It's there in my book. But Netaji was by, I mean, nine for Shamaprasad Mukherjee was basically concerned with India and the scene in Bengal. By then, by 1941, Netaji was lost to India and Bengal. He was abroad. He was organizing. First, he uh, had to land in Germany. That itself was such a Herculean task that it's very difficult. I would recommend that you read uh, these two books. This, this one, Springing Tiger by Hugh Toye, is a thin book. It's very easy to read. But the other one, that is Leonard Gordon's book, Brothers Against the Raj. It's a much more comprehensive book, but it's a thick book. I suggest that you start reading this Subhash Chandra Bose's uh, biography by uh, Hugh Toye and also Anujdhar's uh, writings. Nanda Kumarji has a follow-up question. Given that the entire population of Pakistan, as it ex exists now, would be a part of India if no partition had taken place, what would be the state of politics in India now? What is the state of politics in India now? Imagine India has now a bigger population of Muslims than Pakistan. Isn't it? So if another, some uh, extra population was added, Muslims would have had a much more political clout. That is all that we can say. But we were prepared. The Congress was prepared to give that clout. Simply that. As I said, the most likely scenario would have been the cabinet mission proposals in which the uh, center would have been weak, the states would have been strong, and there would have been something like the United States. And remember, Jinnah would have died in 1948. Jinnah's illness was one of the best-kept secrets in India. It was known only to him, 
and to his doctor who was a Parsi, who was not even a Muslim. And these, uh, he would have died and he was suffering from cancer when Pakistan was created. If you can, if you look at his pictures, his cheeks are sunken and his, uh, he was already a thin man, but he was emaciated at that time. He died in 1948. After that, the leaders who were there were nowhere near his caliber. Liaqat Ali Khan, Nazimuddin, Muhammad Ali Bogra, Chaudhary Muhammad Ali, the men of straw, they would have, they could not have given leadership. Yes, sir, about uh, partition, the observation that you made, that partition mm. could have been prevented. And we, we read all these things, we've grown up reading this. But now when we look at things and we look at the situation back then too, the population of Muslims was large, even in British India. It probably was around 30%. 25%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, close to 30%. And now we can see how these murmurs are so strong as the population is growing strong even now. So do you think after independence, even if we had a strong leadership, that how many decades could we have uh, sort of, you know, Prevented this partition? Do you think it was entirely preventable? Is it something that we could have actually partition? Prevented? Uh, and uh, good question. Partition happened for a variety of reasons. One reason was Nehru's perfidy, which I have already mentioned in 1937 and in 1946. Secondly, second reason was Jinnah's iron will. He was incredibly. Um, uh, he had an incredibly strong will, before which. Let alone Nehru, let alone Gandhi, even a strong man like Patel had yielded. Incredibly strong will. He just wouldn't budge. He just wouldn't give ground. And as a result of that, he uh, he was he wouldn't stop at anything. He did the Great Calcutta killings. He did the Noakhali killings. It is as a result of that these people uh, they they bent and they yielded to him. Jinnah would have been dead. After Jinnah, as I said, all the other leaders, that is Liaqat Ali Khan, Nazimuddin, uh, Muhammad Ali Bogra, Chaudhary Muhammad Ali, all these, they were men of straw. They would have been in nowhere. So um, um, it just might, India might have just lasted as Akhand Bharat. Hi, hi, Tata uh, I mean, excellent talk. Uh, so just to add on to the um, marriage, uh, this uh, thing with of Bose with uh, with Anita, uh, I'm sorry, with Emily. Uh, even Suresh Chandra Bose also accepted that the yes, marriage. It's not that just Sarat Chandra Bose, but even Suresh Chandra Bose accepted that. He did. Uh, and uh, the point I think why the controversy has uh, sustained is because Sarat Chandra Bose, for some reasons, didn't actually make things clear. He, he he went to meet Emily and uh, he with his family, but ultimately, in, when it came to media, he I think didn't portray it in a very clear manner. But the fact that he went there twice with his family and daughters yes. is a proof that he accepted them as the part of the family. When Emily came, Suresh Chandra Bose accepted it, and I think probably. Even the Bengal volunteer person, um, yes, I think he had some doubts, but he also probably changed his mind. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure about that, but that's the thing which I which I know of. So it the the controversy keeps on sustaining for no reason at all. And if you see the photograph of um, uh, Shubhash's mother and the young 
uh, I mean, uh, Anita, you can see the similarity in the face. So I don't think there is any reason to you know, even talk about that. So, but anyway, it was uh, an excellent talk from your end. No, I'll, I'll just give me a few seconds. I'll, uh, I'll see whether I can find that particular passage. Okay, Hello. well, yeah, of course, I uh, greatly appreciated the, the second half of your talk. I, I was late, but um, okay. Uh, there are two points that I might perhaps usefully uh, contribute yes, to. Yes. This question of celibacy seems to animate a lot of people. Now, about that, I heard of it first. You know, I later, of course, heard the version that many Indians told me. But um, I heard, first heard of it in the book, The Light at the Center by Agihana, Swami Agihananda Bharati. Okay. He was, he was a, a convert. He was a German. And in okay. fact... As a student of Indology, uh, he was employed by the Nazi regime mm -hmm. as an interpreter with the Indian soldiers mm -hmm. of Subhash Chandra Bose. He knew Subhash Chandra Bose personally. And so the story he gave is that so after the war, when the followers of Subhash Bose found out that he had a wife and daughter uh, mm. back in, in Germany, they wouldn't believe it. Not so much because of something he had once promised of, you know, I want to mm. be the, you know, I want to dedicate my life fully to the cause, mm. which in fact is just like Hitler, who also mm. promised the German people he wanted to be married to Germany, not to any exactly. woman, exactly. though he had a mistress and so on. Uh, anyway, so that's not so much the reason. He thought the reason was that Hindus have a great respect for celibacy. It's very prized. Like, like Shankara, for instance, had to trick his mother into conceding to him permission for being a celibate monk. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people couldn't believe that someone with such a charisma mm -hmm. as Netaji could mm -hmm. have excuse me for the rather physical description that he could mm. have spilled his 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 vital force his mm. virya mm. Uh, and, and and still be such a great man you see that thought it was so ordinary that it's mm. not befitting for a great man like netaji mm -hmm. right then secondly i have a question you are certainly aware that some people okay accept the greatness as a patriotic hero of Netaji, but nevertheless say that on the downside, mm -hmm. you see where, I mean, he contrasts with Gandhi and Nehru by his merits, you mm -hmm. see, by his, his, his truly heroic dedication to the cause of freedom. Mm -hmm. But by contrast, he was just like them in a negative sense, namely that he was also swayed by some kind of appeasement and mm. that he um, that some of his lieutenants for example were certified jihadis also turned to Pakistan after, after independence and so on and uh, this is more or less summed up 
by his fondness of Urdu, apparently during the uh, voyage in the uh, submarine. He tried his hand at an Urdu translation of Janaganamana. Mm. And the name of his army was Azad Hind Faus, which is mm -hmm. pure Urdu. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't know how important this is, uh, how important we should read this within his overall merits, but how, what do you think of it? Uh, Dr. Elst, I don't know if you were present at that time, but I was saying that in the until the late 40s and early 50s, the spoken language in North India was not Hindi, but something called Hindustani, which is halfway between Hindi and Urdu. Urdu itself is basically a language like, you know, Yiddish which is German words put in, uh, Hebrew words put in German grammar, or Afrikaans, which is uh, Bantu words put in uh, Dutch grammar. Urdu is Farsi words put in Hindi grammar. But the, the frequency of these Farsi words, it depends on the inclination of the people. In uh, the, We can understand the Indian Urdu, which is spoken over the, the uh, TV programs, but we can't understand the Pakistani Urdu, the Urdu that the Pakistanis speak, because there's a lot more Farsi there. There, Hindustani was a language which is which is which had a smaller number of Farsi words, and Hindustani was written in both Devanagari script and uh, the Arabic script, and. Uh, the language that Netaji uh, advocated for the country was Roman Hindustani, that is Hindustani written in Roman script. He, in order to solve the problem of this script, whether it should be Devnagari or uh, Urdu or uh, the Arabic script, he advocated Roman script. And I think that was a, that was a good thing to do. And Hindustani was equally intelligible. As a matter of fact, you know, the Hindi that we speak today in India is not intelligible to Pakistanis. On the other hand, the uh, Hindustani that was spoken in the 40s was intelligible. Is If it's spoken today, it would still be intelligible to Pakistanis. As I said, in a film called Kismat, Ashok Kumar meets someone and he says, Adavarish. He is Ashok Kumar is Hindu, the other person, whatever part they are playing is Hindu, but they said Adavarish, which is a Muslim greeting. This uh, mixture was there. This Hindustani language is now practically defunct, and people who speak a very, we speak now a very Sanskritized uh, Hindi, which is not understandable uh, for, to Pakistanis. So the point I was on is that this. Hindustani written in Roman script would have, as Netaji advocated, was a unifying factor. And what you were saying about uh, celibacy, the connection between celibacy and greatness, is something that I completely agree with and I, um, I don't subscribe to that view. A lot of Indians have it. I suppose a lot of Catholics have, have it also because their priests are um, celibate. I went to a Catholic school and their priests are celibate. So, well, that is there, but I don't do that connection. Sir, Dr. Royce, a uh, uh, few questions. 
Uh, you had said the cabinet mission proposal, yes. uh, Crips mission, mm -hmm. uh, vision was to have a weak center and mm -hmm. uh, strong states. Yes. Given that there would have been a weak center mm -hmm. with the Pakistani population in India. Muslim population. What would, been, what would have been the state of India now? I mean, it would have been, would it be balkanized like uh, Yugoslavia? See, you are, uh, you have missed one point that I tried to emphasize. That is, it's not purely on a theoretical plane. It has also got to do with the personality of the leaders. Until now, Pakistan has not been able to throw up a single leader of the stature of, say, Atal Bihari Bajpayee, Narendra Modi, even Narsimha Rao. They have not been able to throw up a single leader. Other than Jinnah, all other leaders of the Muslim League were men of straw. So after Jinnah had died, he would have died in 1948. It was already known. It was a, one of the best kept, kept secrets in India, known only to him and his Parsi doctor. So after Jinnah had uh, died, Muslim League would have been in disarray and perhaps some arrangement would have. These are all in the realm of conjecture. You know, this is nobody can say for certain. What if, what if? But I think this would have been a likely scenario. The question, Dr. Roy, uh, is what would have been the state as in despite not having leadership, the, the, I'm talking about the stability of the polity, the state of affairs, there would have been possibly no partition. But what would have been the current state as in, would there have been a peaceful state, number one? Number two, would there be a sense of purpose of, as a nation? Could there have been a sense of purpose as a nation? Could there have been at least some particular direction the nation could have taken, given that volatile numbers that would have been remaining in India? See, this is uh, very difficult to answer unless you take into account the personality of the leaders. You see, in uh, the 1930s and 1940s, there were enough leaders, both in the both among Hindus and Muslims, who did not agree with the Muslim League and who could have led the Muslims on a path of reconciliation with Hindus. I can straight away name two. One was Sir Sikandar Hayat Khan in Punjab. Sir Sikandar Hayat Khan, he led a party called the Unionist Party which was a party in which Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs were equally represented. And the, uh, he was totally against Jinnah. He was, it was basically a party of landowners. But Sikandar Hayat Khan had that quality. Unfortunately, he died in 1942. After that, there was another person called Hizar Hayat Tiwana. Hizar Hayat Tiwana was not of that caliber. And eventually he, you know, I was told a story here that... Um, Julius was going along the streets of Lahore and the people were shouting this about Bhimsen Sachar against the Khachar Sachar, they were saying. And meanwhile, somebody came and whispered something to the leader of that Julius. And that said that the leader started shouting, 
तो क्या खबर आई है डिफरेंट this is my very humble submission this is all in the realm of conjecture no one knows what would have happened incidentally aparna ji this is the book that i was referring to i would recommend this book to everyone possibly dr elst has already read it but this is a very well researched book and this is a this is not by any any the, the author is american in fact he is a jewish american so um, uh, there is no personal bias or religious bias or any such thing thank you very much i read uh, freedom at midnight by dominic lapier and larry collins that when i was still in school yeah. it uh, is very very pro gandhi and it came yes, very pro yes, gandhi yes. views yeah that is popular writing you know they had to sell the book this is uh, this is a real work of research this uh, one amazing just one more uh, thing which i wanted to ask mm. uh, so someone mm. asked about spm about shama prasad mukherjee mm. uh, so i just wanted to ask uh, that he formed the jansang on october 21 the same date as the provincial government of azad hind was formed by subhash bos and uh, some oh. uh, some people uh, claim that it was some sort of a tribute he gave to uh, he was trying to grieve so is there a truth in that or was it I just i have a, never that? heard this connection before it is possible it was at the back of his mind but i have never heard this connection before yeah so this claim is sometimes made by joanto goshal actually i was going to his book this subhash was versus shama prasad this joanto goshal is a journalist he is not a historian okay. or okay. he is not a no, not no, no, sorry joanto choudhury sorry no not uh, uh, i mean uh, he works on uh, subhash bos just just like anuj dhar and uh, okay. chandrachurda so he is also hmm. a, a person who works on these things Uh, okay. so i read it in one of his books and blogs and uh, he makes that claim but i don't see any evidence to that but no, you no, see i the... haven't heard any such thing it is possible okay. but, uh, okay. but i haven't heard any such thing i must confess i must confess 